Hi, this is John, the creator of Tale of the Manticore. I just wanted to include this quick message at the beginning of the show to say that over the summer months, I plan to increase production just a little bit. I'll be aiming to release three episodes a month instead of the usual two, at least for the summer. After that, I'll probably have to return to bi-weekly. Just wanted to share that good news with you. And now, on with the show. The following podcast is intended for a mature audience. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to Tale of the Manticore. Like the creature from which it takes its name, Tale of the Manticore is a mashup, a crossbreeding between two different species of storytelling. Here you will find the unpredictability of old school paper and dice games with the storycraft of a dark fantasy novel. No character is sacred and no character will be spared if the dice decide their fate is at hand. The dice determine all. According to lore, the tale of a manticore is barbed with cruel iron spikes. There will be much pain in the days ahead. Last time on Tale of the Manticore. In Chapter 7, our party of five tragically became a party of four, when Soli, brave dwarven warrior of the Skundrum War, fell in battle with zombie-like creatures known as Raffenfell's Angels. The Abomination's maker has fled his laboratory, leaving the party with no real clues as to his identity. The party spends the night in the dungeon, mourning the loss of their friend and licking their wounds. They'll be faced with rather a large decision in the morning. Chapter 8, Part 1, Day 3, Morning. Status, Kagan, 2 out of 8 hit points. Umura, 4 out of 5 hit points. Girios, 5 out of 7 hit points. Eridine, 4 out of 4 hit points. Spells available, 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 available. Between the lines. Umura has found German's spellbook, but she hasn't had an opportunity to look at it yet. That time is coming up shortly. As soon as the party stops to rest, Umura will be nose deep in her books. And since she knows what it is, Dermon's book will be of greatest interest to her. Although I have been using the rules, more or less, from the Moldve edition of the basic set, I'm planning to tweak a thing or two for Tale of the Manticore. The first item on the list is to demote the spell Read Magic from first level to zero level. This means that any magic user can read magic writing at any time as a permanent always-on ability. The reasons for this are probably obvious to anyone who's played the game. There's absolutely nothing interesting about it from a role-playing point of view. 
and it's crippling from a gameplay perspective. Magic users have it hard at beginning levels, and for good reason. But this rule chains them to a giant, no-fun-sized anchor. If a magic user wants to learn a spell from an enemy book, or copy a scroll spell into their spellbook for permanent use, I'll have them perform an intelligence check. Success means they keep the spell. In the case of a scroll, the original writing will immolate upon being copied. Failure means the magic user cannot understand the spell and must wait until they gain the next level to try again. Magic users cannot copy a spell of any level higher than they can actually use, whether it be from a book or a scroll. A bit more on scrolls. Consistent with the basic rules, I'll allow anyone to read and use a protection type scroll. There's one more change I'll be making though. It occurred to me the other day that it made no sense for a clerical scroll of one religion to work with a cleric that was not of that same faith. In fact, any cleric worth their symbol would refuse to recite a spell that glorified or drew power from another deity. A final word on the subject of spells. In virtually all cases, I'll be dispensing with the whole spell component thing, unless it really adds some flavor to the narrative. A spellcaster needs to be able to speak and move in order to cast a spell, and that'll about do it. Well, there's a little give and a little take for our users of magic. With that out of the way, let's get back to our characters. Although the greatest danger appears to have passed, they are quite literally not out of the woods yet. Thanks again, Kagan, said Kyrgios as he limped alongside him. If it weren't for these boots, I should not have lasted 20 minutes. Kagan smiled back wanly. His feet already hurt, and it was not yet noon. They had many more hours to go before they made camp for the night. The map, combined with what they remembered from the march into the forest, indicated that they had at least five days' worth of walking ahead of them, if not six. Accordingly, the party had left the tower at dawn, hoping to make use of daylight and the relative safety it afforded them. They followed the river upstream for a time before stopping to recheck the map. If this is correct, the river will continue straight ahead a ways and then fork, said Kagan. Before leaving the tower, the party had agreed that the best and simplest course of action would be to first concentrate on getting out of the Kingswood. Once they were out, they could each make a decision on where to go. The most direct route, free of the place, pointed more or less toward Burke, and so it seemed that town would be their destination. In mid-afternoon, Eredin came up to walk beside Gyrios. I never thanked you for what you did for me back there. Gyrios lifted an eyebrow, not entirely sure what the girl referred to. I have excellent hearing, she said. Oh, I... Gyrios trailed off. You took my side when no one else did, and for that I'm very grateful. You were very kind. Gyrios merely smiled uncomfortably. A moment later, the girl spoke again. Tell me of your homeland, Gyrios. Is it very different from Camertine? Well, Gyrios considered thoughtfully, yes and no. For one thing, young ladies never address older men. It's considered immodest. Immodest? Really? <laughs> How odd. What else? Well, um, you might find this, um, interesting. Girls under the age of 12 are not permitted to wear a dress or grow their hair past their shoulders. Responding to Eredin's blank look, he added, 
It has to do with our religion. Oh, is everyone in Camranth as uh, spiritual as you are? No, they aren't. But I do think that overall Camranth is more religious, more conservative at any rate. Perhaps they just value their customs more. Camranthians worship many gods, not just Mazagar, you know. There's Noda, goddess of the sky, Vorodon, god of the moon, and Nathier, goddess of the seas, to name but a few. Then why do you pray only to Mazagar? That's the easiest of your questions so far, Aradine. Of all the gods, I pray to Mazagar because he's the only one to have spoken to me. He really did? Aradine was rapt. There was no hint of irony in her tone or expression. What did he say? Back to hard questions, I see. He spoke to me when I was but a boy, five or six years younger than I'd guess you are. I have followed him ever since. As to what he said, well, that is something I will never share. It was for me alone. Oh, I didn't mean to pry. Not at all, Aradine. I am most pleased to tell you anything else you might wish to know about Mazagar or Camranth, or any of the other gods. Each is fascinating in their own way. I should most like to hear about it. All of it. And so Gyrios lectured as they walked, and Aradine listened. Sometimes she had a question, but mostly she just listened. Camranth was exotic, far away. She thought a person might start a new life in such a place. They spent the next few hours this way. It seemed that once he started, it was hard to stop Gyrios from talking. Eventually, the sun dipped lower in the sky, then disappeared below the tree line. Here is Vorodon to light our way, said Gyrios, pointing at the full moon as it became brighter, little by little. They all breathed a sigh of relief when the expected fork in the river came into view. After they forded the river, Kagan called a halt. Ahead, the silvery ribbon of moonlit water curled away and out of sight among the trees. I think we best settle in for the night, said the fighter. I would wish for a campfire, but it might be best if we forgo it. The light might draw attention to us. So, for the second time, the companions will spend the night at the riverside. All are footsore. Their arms ache from the equipment they carry, for by now, it is significant. Before departing the tower, they had carefully collected everything of use and value and distributed it amongst themselves. Kagan took the coins and the ring from Soli, as well as the book on goblin language and a dozen candles. All of this went into a sack he'd emptied out in the laboratory. Eredin now bore Soli's short sword and her dagger. She also carried the silver candelabra in her free hand. Gyrios and Umura shared the remaining books, oil, lantern, and water skins. An updated set of character sheets including their full inventories is available, along with this episode's show notes on taleofthemanticore.blogspot.com. The party's at risk during the night, even more so than during the day, and so they must set a watch. The watch will last roughly two hours each and happen in the following order. Umura, Kagan, Gyrios, and then Eredin. Luckily for the party, the goblin's map is more or less accurate and does indeed show them the way out of the Kingswood. The journey will take six days, and the party is in some degree of danger for the duration, for the Kingswood is a deadly place to wander. Instead of rolling for encounters every few hours, 
I'm just going to roll once per day. If an encounter is indicated, I'll be using a new wandering creature table that will replace the ogre encounter with the chance to find some evidence of Raffenfell's passage, for he went this way too. This list will also be posted on the blog. In the interest of keeping our story moving along, I'll rule that the party has just a 1 in 3 chance of encountering something potentially dangerous every day. If something is indicated, I'll roll high-low to see if the encounter happens in the day or the nighttime. Here are the rules. A 3. Nothing on the first night. A quick sidebar for the second day. Umura will make her attempt to understand the two spells in Derman's spellbook today. She needs to make a successful intelligence check of 17 or under. It would be a surprise if she failed, but let's see the rolls. For the spell, light. Umura rolls a... 18. Wow, how unlucky. She simply cannot wrap her mind around the incantation, and she'll have to wait until level 2 to try again. It's critical that she succeeds on this next roll, or she'll be without any spells until she levels or finds a new one to study. The roll. 10. Damn, that looked like a 20 at first. Umura has successfully understood the spell Charm Person. She memorizes it before they set off for the day. Let's continue our rolls for wandering encounters now. Day 2. A 6. The party heals a hit point each and encounters nothing. Day 3. A 4. The party heals a hit point each and encounters nothing. Their stats are now Kagan, 4 out of 8 hit points, Umura, 5 out of 5, Girios, 7 out of 7, Eridine, 4 out of 4. On the fourth day, Kagan goes up to 5 hit points and everyone else is at max, so let's see if they run into any trouble. Here's the roll. A 2. Ah, it looks like they have found something, or something has found them. Let's see if the encounter happens in the day or the night. Rolling. It happens during the day. For the encounter type, I've rolled a 2. Let's check the table. The table tells me they found 5 to 9 giant rats. Let's see how many. Just 5. That's fortunate, for although these giant rats are fairly weak with just 3 hit points each, their bite carries the chance of serious disease, and the party is still without any form of protection at all. Are you a rookie dungeon master, lost in the vast and seemingly endless world of Dungeons & Dragons? Or perhaps you're a veteran game master with renowned TPK abilities, but you wish someone would just appreciate all the finer details you put into the game. Uh, yeah dude, we hear ya. Ignorant Dreams of a Rookie Dungeon Master is not just an advice show filled to the brim with tons of great information on how to become a better DM. No! It's a community for the self-loathing, narcissistic, and delusion-filled figures behind the screen who keep this whole game a-going. So, next time you find yourself with a big question about dungeon mastering, or you need an attaboy from people just as crazy as you, tune in to Ignorant Dreams of a Rookie Dungeon Master anywhere you get your podcast fix. It's middle afternoon when Kagan stops the party. There's a foul smell of decay in the air, although it's difficult to determine where it's coming from. By the time the party finds the source of the stench, it's too late to avoid being noticed. Along the riverbank, up ahead and obscured from sight until now, the lifeless body of a large black bear can be seen. It's half in and half out of the river. 
Now they noticed flies buzzing all around it, settling in a cloud upon the carrion only to explode into the air as though the swarm shared a single thought. Each time the flies take to the air, the party members think they see the bear move. More precisely, it seems as though something moves inside the body. The flies alight and again take flight as one. This time the party can see what is causing the movement. Rats, the size of dogs, three feet long from snout to rump and with black coats slicked down with gore, are feasting on the dead bear. They've noticed the party and squeal their threats. The party does not retreat, but follows Kagan as he rushes toward them, axe held high. The rats each have three hit points, an AC of seven, and do one to three points of damage on a successful hit. Furthermore, every successful hit carries with it a 5% chance, a one on a d20, to become infected with disease. We'll deal with the particulars of that when and if it comes to pass. Also, with five rats, one of the characters will have to deal with two at once. Eridine is our unlucky winner. Let's get into it. Neither side is surprised, so it's straight to initiative. Here's the rolls, the giant rats. A two, the party. A six, the party rushes in. Eridine strikes with her short sword. A 17. For six damage, Eridine has cut a rat in half in her first blow. Umar is up next. She stabs with the silver dagger. She needs a 12 to hit the rat's AC of seven. A 12, that just makes it. She does. Two points of damage. Gyrios swings with his club. He also needs a 12 to hit. But an eight is not going to do it. Kagan swings his ax. He only needs an 11. He's gotten an 11. He does. Four points of damage, opening a gaping hole in one of the rats' side, and it falls over dead. Now it's the rat's turn. The rat Anumura bites at her. It needs a 10 to hit her AC of nine. It's got an eight. Umura kicks it away. The rat on Girios attempts to hit him. It needs an 11. It strikes with a 13 for two points of damage. The rat has bitten him viciously on the leg. Now here's the really bad news. There's a 1% chance that this bite carries with it a deadly disease. Here's the roll, a 15. The number we're not looking for is a one. The rat on Eridine attacks her. It also needs an 11 to hit her AC of eight. It rolls a two and Eridine bats it away with her blade. Round two, initiative, the giant rats, a two, the party, a five. The party has won again. These creatures are more dangerous than they appeared. The party has redoubled their efforts. Eridine swings her sword. A 16, she's hit again for just one point of damage. Umura's next. She needs a 12 to hit the rat. She rolls a one. She's dropped her dagger and can't see where it went. She's going to miss her next round while she looks for it. Girios needs a 12. 
He rolls a three. The bite in his leg, compounded with his foot wound, has made him off balance. The pain is terrible. Kagan strikes. Nat 20. That's an instant kill on... Umura's rat. Only two rats remain. They need to make a morale check now or flee. Their morale score is an eight. Their roll? A three. They're going to stay, and they will continue to attack the same characters. The rat on Gyrios lunges. It needs an 11. It's got a 12. That hits. Gyrios has been knocked backward. He trips. The rat is now on his chest and tears at his shoulder. Two points of damage. Another chance for disease. An 8. The cleric is lucky again. Eridine's rat attacks her. It also hits with a 15. Somehow it gets inside her blade's reach and tears at her arm for one point of damage and also a chance of disease. The roll is a 16. She's safe for now. Round three, initiative. The rats, a five. The party, a four. These last two rats have both tasted blood and they're in a frenzy. The rat is on Gyrios' chest. He bites down. A 17, that's yet another hit, three in a row. The rat has buried its mouth in the shoulder wound for two more points of damage and yet another chance for disease. The roll is a 19. Eridine's rat attacks her again. She shoves it back and prepares her counter-strike. With a three, she's not even close. Umura will miss this round, but she sees a gleam of silver among the leaves and recovers her dagger. Gyrios tries to hit his rat. A five, he is unable to get this thing off him. Kagan wants to help Gyrios and swings at his rat. But with a two, he just can't quite connect. He wants to help his companion, but a blow might hit him, and he pulls his swing short. Round four, initiative. The giant rats, a two. The party, a six. The party needs to finish the job here and now, or I fear that at least one of them might have gone through everything so far, only to fall to a rat. Eridine slashes with her sword, but with a five, the rat has dodged the blow. Umura swings, a three. This is not going well for the party. Gyrios takes his try. An 18, Gyrios finally shoves the creature off him and brings the club down across the creature's back. There's the sound of crunching bone and the beast stops moving. Kagan tries to lend a hand to Eridine. With an eight, he just can't seem to reach her in time to place a good shot. With one rat left, and it already hurt, I'm making one last morale check. A four. It's going to fight to the death. The rat attacks Aerodine. An 18, another hit. This one is for two points of damage. Aerodine is down to her last hit point. She also has to roll for disease. A one and a 20 will do it. The roll is a seven. Round five. Initiative, the giant rat. Two. The party? A five. Eridine is in big trouble now. The party really needs to kill this thing. 
Aerodine swings. But a five will not get the job done. Umora tries. A ten is close, but still a miss. Gyrios is up. A six, Gyrios can't connect either. This last rat is fast. Kagan takes his try. A 14, finally, that's a hit. And the damage? Five points, that's enough to kill it twice. This battle is over. Party stats post-combat are now as follows. Kagan, five out of eight hit points. Umura, five out of five hit points. Gyrios, three out of seven hit points. Eridine, down to one out of four hit points. Spells available. Umura has memorized Charm Person. Eridine is badly hurt, and the brush with death has rattled her nerves. When Gyrios moves towards her, she wraps her arms around him and cries into his chest. The priest winces but does not let go. He murmurs comforting words to her and strokes her back. We absolutely need to get out of these woods, says Umura, stating the obvious. Kagan checks the map. He tells them that they probably have just one more full day of travel. They move away from the scene of carnage and continue to follow the river. After an hour, they stop to make camp one last time. Although it's painful, Gyrios insists that both he and Eridine scrub their wounds thoroughly in the river water. He's aware that vermin carry disease, though he does not mention this to Eridine, who is barely keeping it together. More bandages are torn and applied. They plan their night watch and get ready for the coming long hours of waiting in the dark. Waiting for the dawn. I need to make one more wandering encounter check for the next day. The roll. It's a five. Mercifully, nothing finds them. Party spends a final, terrible night in the Kingswood, enduring hunger, pain, and fear. But in the morning, dawn does come. Gyrios makes his prayers, and the party fills their skins with river water and picks up their gear. Breakfast will be the very last of their turnips. The carrots and radishes are long gone, so there will be no lunch or dinner. The last day is exhausting and marked with the feeling of urgency. They must rush along and take only short breaks. Nobody wants to spend another night in the woods. As the sun begins to set, Kagan points ahead and laughs. Look, you can see the sunset through the trees. They're thinning out. We've made it. And sure enough, they had. Just 30 minutes later, they found themselves on the road. Kagan felt like he could have knelt down and kissed it. After pushing on just a few more hours, like an answered prayer, they saw the lights of Burke. Thank you for listening to Tale of the Manticore. If you enjoy what you've heard and would like to support the show, please consider leaving a five-star review on iTunes. It helps a great deal. Also, feel free to drop me a line at taleofthemanticore at gmail.com. I'd love to hear your thoughts on the show. I can also be found on Instagram. For show notes, more behind-the-scenes info, rants, and random thoughts, 
visit me at taleofthemanticore.blogspot.com. Our story continues in the next chapter of Tale of the Manticore, the story where chaos rolls. Would you like to know more about some of the most influential role-playing games out there? Roll to Save is a podcast dedicated to the history of RPGs and it can be found wherever you get your podcasts from and at rolltosave.blog. We take a long hard look at the origins of some of the biggest games and their often turbulent histories. Roll to Save also looks at how modern games have been shaped by the games that came before. So, if you fancy delving into the fascinating history of role-playing games, visit rolltosave.blog or search for Roll to Save on your podcast directory of choice. You can also contact us at at Save Podcast on Twitter. Join us on a trip down memory lane. You might be surprised at what you learn.